Hey everyone, it's it's David once again, and we're back for another holiday chat call. This time I'm joined by Eric, who's got some questions about financing and what it's like when you when you get your hands on the reins. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Why don't you give yeah. why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background so we can understand uh, where you're coming from? Okay, great. Yeah. Hey, my name is Eric Currents. Uh, I live in uh, Rayford, North Carolina, which is right outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm uh, I'm 43 years old. I'm unmarried. I have no children. I've spent the last 25 years in the U.S. military, and I am looking to transition here in the next like 12 to 15 months. Mm-hmm. So I'm planning, uh, kind of making a plan for what's next for me. I spent. Are uh, you still in the services right now? I, I am. I okay. am. Yeah, I'm looking to retire here in the next like 12 to 15 months. And uh, I spent. Uh, I have some experience with. Um, real estate investing uh, in the military. They moved me a lot. I bought houses pretty much where they, where they moved me mm-hmm. after a while. I ended up with, you know, five, seven houses. And I said, Hey, you know, I could kind of do this as a, as an investment thing. So I started buying uh, for investments specifically, not just homes that I lived in. Uh, I kind of culminated with buying a uh, 77 unit manufactured home community, okay. which, which I sold uh, about three years ago for profit. So, and uh, now I'm, I'm uh, it's not, the real estate uh, game is really not something that I want to be in anymore. And that's what made me start researching uh, business buying. Okay. About maybe six, year, uh, six months ago, I started doing research on it, which led me to your um, YouTube page. Um, and it, it's, it is like totally opened my mind on uh, the possibilities out there and just the, the, more than anything, like the the, uh, the possibilities for income, which is far greater than what I, you know, saw in in the single family home investment market, at least in the southeast of uh, the United States. So that's what that's what I'm going with. I've got about um, two hundred thirty thousand dollars for down payment, mm-hmm. and I've been researching SBA financing. Um, I have a a lender that I've talked to a couple times, um, who's willing to do um, 10%. I know, I know you have you have some reservations about the 10% down thing. I think I saw a video that you made about that once. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. I'm still kind of in the researching um, phase. I found a couple things that I'm interested in. What I'm most comfortable with is something in the um, real estate space. Like I've been looking at like roofing companies and septic companies and construction companies, probably just because I'm more familiar with that, but I'm really open to a lot of things, not really like restaurants and stuff that, that like. What, what do you do in the military? So I'm a civil affairs officer, which um, a lot of people don't know. We call ourselves gun-toting diplomats, but, <laughs> but um, so there, it's kind of like the military's version of the State Department, the State Department being on the civilian side, military civil affairs being it. So anything from uh, disaster assistance, um, governmental, assisted governmental organizations, uh, democracy. We go to other countries and help them set up elections and burgeoning uh, democracy, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, it's like a, a diplomatic kind of function where you're, you are spending time talking with other people, making plans, projects, yeah. that type of thing. 
Correct, yeah. And we also have like our humanitarian assistance and disaster assistance side of it as well. So like we were instrumental during like the big, you may remember the big uh, earthquake that they had in Haiti a few years back. Mm-hmm. We did that, um, the big uh, hurricane in Puerto Rico last year, just stuff, stuff like that as well. And so, okay, so so when you start to talk about disaster assistance, you're you're talking about like logistical stuff. Correct. Yeah. What what, what sort of skills? Like, what, what sort of skills are you using every day in your work? So, well, right now I'm I'm on staff at a four star level command, um, right. and the area that I'm in in charge of is over um, uh, operations in on the continent of Africa. The military is divided into geographic combatant commands. Mm-hmm. And uh, the geographic area that I'm in charge of is Africa, with the African continent min- minus uh, Egypt, because Egypt actually is under the central command because it's more of an Arabic country. Okay. Um, so there's there's plenty to do on the continent of Africa that falls into those skills, you know. The reason why I'm asking about this <clears throat> is because if you go down the road of looking for SBA financing to buy a business, mm-hmm. one of the big things that's important to them is that you have some sort of relevant experience in the industry for which you're buying the business. Mm -hmm. And so it's very clear to see that you have experience in the real estate stuff because you've owned houses and had tenants and and all that kind of thing. And I was just wanting to explore if maybe there weren't some things about the work that you're doing now that could open up some other sort of uh, Mm -hmm. areas where you could make the argument that your skill set is transplantable into into some kind of business and so you know the thing that comes off the top of my head would be some sort of service that has to do with negotiating bureaucratic structures Mm -hmm. so i don't know if there's a service out there that helps people obtain permits and you know that kind of thing then maybe some of the skills that you employ might be transferable to that kind of environment yeah um i think it probably would uh, but I also don't know how interested I would be in doing that. Okay. Well, that's another yeah. consideration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of looking for something different after 25 years. <laughs> what sort of cash flow are you looking for from the business? So from what I've found in, in my research, um, in the, in the price range that I've been looking is, um, uh, SDEs of around between 400,000 and $700,000 is what I, is what I found. Now that's what they're advertising. Of course, I haven't I haven't gotten you know spreadsheets from everybody and normalized and so forth. But it's just kind of what they're advertising, which is different than what I think. Um, I think I watched the um, module in your business buyer advantage uh, when you were talking about what to expect uh, from different different levels of businesses. Yeah, <clears throat> what people are asking. Is, is sometimes it doesn't have a whole hold a whole lot of relevance. Okay. Um, there are lots of businesses. I regularly work with people where we look at businesses that are overpriced by double. Yeah. And it, and it ha- simply has a lot to do with the fact that um, people who are in the in the normal course of business doing a certain kind of business just don't know how to properly price a business. Sure. Sometimes they get bad advice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Lately. One of the things that I've noticed is that some of the business for sale websites are selling these reports based on, on industry topics. So like you could do a report on all the businesses in a certain industry 
and it's talking about the asking prices and what, it, what it's doing is creating a reinforcement loop where people who don't know what they should be asking are looking at other people who don't know what they should be asking. Right. <clears throat> but then they get encouraged by the fact that they're within that range. And then they, sure. and so then the, the data gets, in my opinion, the data gets tainted by the fact that the data is there. Sure. And, and right. And so <clears throat> what you have with that amount of money available for a down payment is you got all kinds of options. Okay. What I would never recommend someone do is put their last nickel into a deal. Right. So it's about determining what kind of reserve you want to have. Yeah. Because one of the questions you would put into the, into the box when you arranged this call was about things that happen in your first month. Yeah. Sometimes there are unforeseen things that happen. Sure. And the, um, and the uh, SBA lender that I was talking to, he did recommend, or I think he said that one of their requirements was to have about $40,000 in working capital, you know, so, so that whatever, 200 something thousand that I have as a down payment, I couldn't plop down that whole 200, I couldn't buy a $2 million business and use it all for that because they require some level of uh, uh, capital left over. Yeah. So <clears throat> businesses require working capital. Without knowing specifically what business we're talking about, it's impossible to have any idea what kind of working capital requirement there is. Right, right. Um, because it depends on what kinds of assets are in the business. Mm -hmm. When you know we talk about multipliers of cash flow for giving a business value, that gives us the enterprise value. The enterprise value contains the net normal position in working capital. And this is one of the most difficult things people um, have to understand mm. and and some people out there even in the business brokerage world don't understand this concept mm. so if you were selling if you were looking at two businesses a lumber yard and a ladies dress shop mm. okay and they both had a million dollars of inventory mm. the lumber yard because the inventory is what we call fungible um, it doesn't go bad it doesn't go stale a two by four is a two by four. And if the business were to close, any other lumber yard would take that two by four and put it in their yard. Okay. And so a bank would be willing to lend a very high percentage of that inventory value to the owner of the business. Okay. And so that owner would be able to have a million dollars of inventory in the yard without having to have a whole lot of his own money tied up because mm. he be, might be able to borrow three quarters of that from the bank. And then there would be the, the payables, the money he owes to his suppliers who are probably going to give them 30 days to pay. Right. So if you, that inventory is moving over, you know, then he might owe money to his suppliers at any given point in time, maybe a couple hundred grand. So he, he could actually support that million dollars of inventory with very little of his own money. Mm -hmm. the, the lady's dress shop owner though, would be in a whole different scenario because the, the dresses at the end of the season might lose their, their popularity and you know, people don't want them, you know, summer dress in the fall um, there are different sizes. And if all the popular sizes are sold and you're left with the other sizes, then that means that, you know, the, the likelihood of selling them is far less. Right. So a banker who looks at that inventory says, mm, I don't think we're interested in making a loan there. Mm. So the, the dress shop owner actually has to have a much higher amount of their own working capital in the business in order to support that inventory than the lumberyard owner. And, and this is why we have to wait and figure out what is the business we need to look at the balance sheets of the current owner to see what kind of level of capital they have. Sure. And then we have to make adjustments because 
if it's been a successful business over the course of a long period of time, a lot of the times the owners will, they'll pay down debts. Mm-hmm. And so the, the balance sheet isn't properly leveraged. And so there's a whole area of conversation about working capital. Um, and you have to kind of wait until you have your sample business before you can figure that out. But and, and it has when, to be fixed. And so when I hear when I hear people say things like a business is undercapitalized, is that what they're talking about? Uh, a business that is undercapitalized doesn't have enough cash to meet its obligations to function properly. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the lumberyard owner, mm-hmm. right? If if he you know, maybe he owes his suppliers 200 grand. He owes the bank 750 Mm -hmm. and with 50,000 of his own money, he can support that million dollars of inventory. Mm -hmm. Let's say he didn't have the 50,000. What would happen? Right? Well, he wouldn't be able to pay his suppliers on time. And so he'd start to fall behind with them. And so initially it might work because now he owes them 250 grand, but he's always late with them. Eventually, they're going to lose patience with that. They're going to start charging him late fees. Maybe they're not going to give him the best deals. They're not going to give him preferential pricing. And so there's a whole chain of negative events that will start to knock off from being from that problem. Mm-hmm. And one of the big reasons how people become undercapitalized is actually through growth. Is they They're successful, but they don't have the ability to retain enough new money in the business if the nature of their business requires them to be laying out uh, further investment. So, right. so let's say the lumber yard used to have an inventory of $700,000 mm-hmm. and they became more and more popular through advertising and doing a good job. And they were always running out of things. So now the owner needs more inventory. So he grows the inventory from 700,000 to a million, but that part that he needs to finance, he hasn't been able to keep that in. And that's when he starts to run behind with his suppliers they start to get annoyed with him, even though he's becoming more successful right. and he's making more sales, he he's running into problems. Huh. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. And in the oh. case of the lumber yard, because I have experience with these, with these types of businesses, mm-hmm. the big problem there is if he's become successful by selling to contractors, mm-hmm. they want to take time to pay him. Mm-hmm. So every sale he makes, he not only does he have to replace the inventory, but then he has to wait for them to pay him before he can pay his supplier. And, yeah. and that stretches everybody thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the over this past couple of months, uh, me looking for these businesses, the one that I've been the most interested in is actually a separate company. Okay. And what they do, they do two things. They have a residential and a commercial side. Residential, they just go to people's houses, pump their septic tanks. You know, it's just a service. They own uh, two pump trucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got the gallons on them and stuff like that. And they have a contract with the water treatment place where they go to dump the pump trucks, so on and so forth. And then on the commercial side, they actually install uh, septic systems on new construction. Um, for houses or for commercial uh, buildings? Uh, I think think for how I think they work with a I think they work with um with builders for residential home communities you know so when they're whatever building 100 homes in a certain community they put in all the septic tanks for them okay so um it's uh I think the asking price is like 1.75 million and they're claiming about six hundred thousand dollars in discretionary earnings 
Um, so I was like, wow, that sounds right up my alley. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a service-based business that, um, you know, the, the uh, equipment is part, it comes with it. They've got some ex excavators and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Pick up stuff. They've got the pump trucks. Uh, it has a building. They're also selling. Included in it is the real estate that the uh, office and where they store all their vehicles and stuff. It's one area, and I think, <clears throat> and I think you uh, had once said something about perhaps separating real estate from business deals. Um, and, and as you move along in business buyer advantage, you're going to get into that in, in oh. greater detail. Okay. Um, because real estate is valued in a much different way than, different way, than right. businesses are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, I've, I've talked to the broker a couple of times. And of course, I got the, the dreaded question that everybody gets when they're looking for, hey, how much, how much money you got to invest? Anyway, you know, they want to they determine if you're a serious buyer, just someone kicking the tires or someone who took a, a course that teaches people how to or attempts to teach people how to buy a business with no money down. Right. right which is, uh, is probably crazy. So, uh, so my question to you is, and I always get like, I get this feel like, you know, I've talked to probably 10 brokers now and they always ask this question. I get all nervous about it and I, and I want them to take me seriously and not stop answering my phone calls, but I also don't want to show my cards, you know, mm -hmm. if it ever comes to the negotiations period, right? So I'm sure you get this question all the time. You know, what is the best way to handle that situation? Yeah. So, so what you do is you say, well, I'm working with John Smith over at XYZ bank mm -hmm. and together we've determined that I can reasonably buy a business between one and a half and $2 million. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so the reason, the reason why that, that sort of script is valid right. is because the banker is not going to say that he's going to finance hundred percent of your deal. Right. The broker knows that. Right. Right. And, and then if, uh, if he pressed me for more questions, I would say, well, you know, I, I'm probably going to do an SPA loan and yeah, I have a few hundred thousand dollars available in cash. Right. Uh, so I've seen sometimes even on, um, even on listings, uh, they'll say something to the effect of, you know, uh, you'll submit a, uh, NDA or submit proof of funds with, with the NDA to get further to get further information on the deal. So mm -hmm. what happens in that situation? Like what, I mean, though. So I used to do that. I used to do this to people in my, okay. N, in my NDA, when I had a business brokerage office, I used to have a net worth statement for people right. to fill in. Okay. Some people just filled it in and it was great because it let me know what money they had. Other people refused. Right. And so there's the, the, I mean, the, the reason you don't want to fully disclose is because you don't want them to know exactly how much money you have or else they're going to exactly. want money. They're going to want it off exactly. Right. And right. so, so some of the other ways I've seen it dealt with is there was, there was one case where, you know, a guy, it was in person face to face. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he had printed off this statement from his stock brokerage investment account. Mm -hmm. And he came by my office and he showed it to me. Mm -hmm. Now in today's day and age, you might meet someone over zoom and you might share the screen right. of your, of your bank login, like saying, right. look, here's my account. I have money. Right. I'm not a big fan of printing things off and submitting them. Mm -hmm. You know, you obviously you'll do that with your banker. Like they're going to want that information, but the, the way that you talk with them, the, you know, the conversations that you have, 
there's the people who don't have any money usually start talking very quickly about creative solutions Mm -hmm. and finding a way for things to work. Mm -hmm. They don't say the name of their banker. Right. Who, who, if it's in a local area, the broker could know. Right. Right. And, and so the, the, anyone who is being deceptive or lying or, or not wanting to reveal stuff tends to become more vague and less specific. Okay. And so, you know, just to have confidence in the statements and say, yeah, I talked with my banker. I bought and sold seven houses as I moved around with the military. I used to own a 77 unit uh, mobile home park. And according to my banker, I can make an offer on a business between one and a half and 2 million. Like if you deliver that to someone, they're, they're, you know, I, I, they'll believe you, Hmm. you know, and, and when the, when the broker calls the seller and says, yeah, I spoke with him and I, I know where his bank is. And the guy used to own a 77 unit mobile home park and he has funds available. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would, I would try that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if the broker comes back looking for no, I need you to print things off. I want a letter. I want this. I want that. Then you just say to him, well, how am I supposed to negotiate if I show you all my cards? I know that you want to make sure that the seller gets the best deal and that's your job. But my job as the buyer is to make sure I get a good deal too. And, and spending every last nickel I have is not going to lead to a good outcome for me because if there's something unforeseen that happens, I need access to money. And, right. and when I've already borrowed from the bank, they're not going to lend to me again. I need to have my own resources, sure. right? The, the number one thing you're trying to accomplish when you're talking with that broker is to get your first meeting with the seller. Okay. Because once you can have that first meeting with the seller and you're going to have the opportunity to make a first impression with them, mm-hmm. what the broker and the seller believe is that when you show up there, they believe that they're trying to sell you the business. Right. That's not actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. The, the purpose of that first meeting is for you to, number one, learn what you need to learn, but number two, demonstrate that you're a qualified buyer. Mm-hmm. They, they need to see that you have the aptitude and the ability and the willingness and the ambition to be able to make it work. And that's, and that's just the first thing. So if, if the, at the end of that meeting, if the seller goes, you know what, Eric, Eric would probably be a great person to buy this business, mm-hmm. right? Then, it, it, then it's your turn to decide if you want to buy it. Mm-hmm. That's when you make offers. The third thing that happens is then you may have to convince them to hold part of the deal. Mm-hmm. So you could make an offer and, and it involves bank financing. You might go to the banker. Maybe the banker isn't willing to do everything you want. Or maybe you don't want to do 90% bank financing because of a bunch of other things that you're going to learn about in Business Buyer Advantage. You're going to want them to hold more paper. Okay. So you, you could then come back and say, hey, I got great news and, and stuff we have to work on. The bank wants to do the deal. They're just not willing to do the deal that we asked. Mm-hmm. And so this is what now I need from you. And, and all, nobody's going to lend you money to buy their business unless they believe that you're going to be capable and qualified and that you're going to be able to do well. Sure, they so don't have to take it back, this, right? 
yeah, this whole thing is like building one block on top of another. And it, and it all comes down to the relationship because once the, once the seller believes in you, like there's a guy in, in um, business buyer adventure, the group coaching program, uh, he's in Georgia. He just did a deal and it was supposed to close before the pandemic hit back in, in March. And there was a delay and then the pandemic lockdown happened. Then all the banks, you know, were like, whoa, we're not, we're panicking. We're not doing anything. And then they were all busy doing the PPP loans. So they weren't, you know, even looking at the acquisition loans. And it was the summertime before they were willing to start looking at those again. And all of a sudden they were lending money, but they were applying all the rules in a much more stringent fashion than ever before. And so bankers that wanted to do with deal with him before saying his business experience was applicable enough, were now saying it wasn't. And then he ended up having to go find a new bank. And, and the two of them, the buyer and the seller, they were talking the whole time yeah. over the course of almost a year. And it really became, how are we going to get this done? Yeah. And at the end of the day, there, they did find a bank through a, a lending broker mm-hmm. and the, um, and the seller had to carry more paper than he had initially wanted to. Right. He was, he was willing to do that because he believed that this was the right buyer. Mm-hmm. What, what are the, what is the, uh, average terms that you've seen for seller help for the seller held portion is usually, have you seen like what, five years, six years? I mean, what is the average? Sellers will always want it as fast as possible. As possible yeah. Right. And, and so this is again, why the relationship is important because if you have to pay them back too quickly, it actually jeopardizes their note. Okay. Bankers understand this sellers don't. Okay. A banker understands that the biggest guarantee that he'll get repaid is that you have adequate cash flow to make the payments, right? right? Sellers have to under, uh, get to the point where they understand that they're, they're making an investment in this loan right. and they need you to be successful. So I will often have people I'm coaching where the seller insists they want to be repaid in two years or three years. Sometimes the SBA lender will say, you know what, that has to be on total standby for two years or sometimes even longer. Mm. And so then it's, it's third-party negotiating. Hey, I'd really like to pay you, but the evil banker has said that you have to wait, right? Oh, wow. that's, that's, that's one way through it. Okay. But the other way through it is sometimes the buyer will come back with a cash flow forecast mm-hmm. and he'll say, look, here's the cash flow according to the business you have today. If I were the owner, this is the money I'd have available. This is what I have to pay the bank. Now, if I pay you what you are insisting on, as you can see, there's no room left. Right. If I have a 5% decline in sales, I won't be able to pay you. Right. Whereas if I pay you over five years or whatever the number is, now you can see that there, it's comfortable. There's adequate cash flow, And it, now the deal works for me. And sometimes it comes down to, you know, pointing out certain things to the seller. Like, uh, oftentimes seller notes are at interest rates that you can't get by putting your money on deposit anywhere. So if your seller notes at 6%, what are you going to do if I gave you all the money today? Deposit it somewhere at 1% or risk it in the market? Like, you know, I'm giving you the opportunity to invest and earn 6% investing in a business you understand. And you know, when the seller is doing that seller's note, 
the other thing too, that you sometimes point out to them is that they are doing a lending role. It would not be, um, it, it would be fine for them to ask for stuff. Like an, an example from earlier today, I was having a conversation about someone who, who bought a bar and the seller was financing most of it because it's hard to finance a bar. And the, the conditions of the seller note were that the seller wanted the monthly uh, report from the POS system and they wanted the invoices, the receipts from all the liquor purchases and, oh. they, wanted, and they wanted to see the monthly um, income statement from the business. And because the, the seller knew the bar business, he'd been it for a long time, he wanted those pieces of information because he wanted to know if trouble was coming. Mm. And this is exactly what you want as a buyer. Wow. You want an invested seller, right. someone who's going to keep their eye on it. In this particular circumstance, it was awesome because um, a few months after the deal was done, the seller called the buyer and said, I'm pretty sure you have someone stealing from you. And came in and showed him why and how he knew because of all that experience looking at those reports and he picked up on something that he always looked for and true enough, they were able to find someone that was pocketing cash. Wow. That's awesome. So um, from your experience dealing with someone like me, who's looking for SBA financing, but doesn't have, much experience in the areas that I'm looking, what is the best way to approach uh, the, the lender or to talk to the lender? How, how can I make myself look, you know, more appealing to them, even though I have a lack of experience? Mm. The, uh, there, there are a couple of ways, but number one, the, the, the way to make it easier on yourself is not to be looking for the maximum amount of financing. If you, if you um, lower the amount that you're looking for from them, it's going to be easier for them to make an approval. Okay. The, the more meaning, money meaning you... Like, meaning like if I, if I find a business for a million dollars and I'm only asking them to... I'm asking for 600000 from them. Yeah. I'm putting up 200000 and the seller's holding 200000 like that. Especially if there are... In the example you used of a septic business especially if you're asking them for 600,000 and there might be 500 or so thousand worth of stuff. Right. 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 Cause then, then all of a sudden there's ample plan B right. action. Collateral, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and so it's, it's going to be easier for them to overlook or bend some of the rules a little bit than if you're looking for the, the maximum amount of financing. And in the, um, and I know that you have a, I'm looking at your life of a business owner's uh, guide here. And you offer a uh, business plan writing, cash flow forecasting, and business plan writing. Mm-hmm. And in that, I'm assuming, in my in my due diligence in general, like I would get appraisals for all of the equipment, right? I think you're an equipment appraiser too, right? I think I, I yeah. So so normally, what happens there is the you use a list mm-hmm. with the seller putting down what they figure things are worth. Okay. And that's what I use. You go to the bank, you say, look, here's a list of equipment and what we figure it's worth. Once they give you a loan approval, it will usually be subject to an appraisal. Okay. Because you don't want to invest money in the appraiser until you know you've been approved for the loan. Okay. okay. Right. And then what sometimes happens to me when I get called out on these appraisal jobs is I'll do the appraisal and I'll come back and I'll deliver a report to the bank. 
And then the bank will call the buyer and the, the buyer thought that there was say a hundred grand worth of stuff in my reports for 70. Yeah. And sometimes the buyer will call me and say, no, I need you to put a higher number. Mm -hmm. Like, are you sure? Or are you sure you shouldn't go back and talk to the seller? Right. 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 Because, because they were saying it was worth a lot more than it actually right. is. Right. This is an opportunity for you to go back and say, you know what, the, the Rene stuff renegotiation there. Yeah. I would to renegotiate so. and, and either get number one, a lower price or number two, say like the number's not high enough. The bank won't give me the loan. So you're going to have to carry more if you right. want the deal to close. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. a, a lot of the time, the sellers have no idea how difficult it's going to be for you because right. a lot of these sellers started the business. Right. And so every time they went to go get financing in the beginning, it was, you know, nearly impossible or they used their personal credit or what have you. And then later when they went to get financing, it was usually to buy a thing. Like mm -hmm. I want to buy this thing. It, it's cost this many dollars and the bank lends against that purchase. Right. And so the, the idea of going to borrow against something that is not tangible like a business, especially if there's any amount of goodwill um, where the value of the business exceeds the value of, of the tangible objects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's nothing to put your hands on. There's no collateral for that part. Right. And so it makes it more difficult. And a lot of sellers don't appreciate that. They think that you can just go and, and they heard of this thing called the SBA and they figure, well, that's the solution. Right. I, I personally am not a fan and, and here's why is because I work on deals in Canada and the U S right. Canada doesn't have an SBA. Mm -hmm. If you buy a business in Canada, you only get financing for the things in the business and a percentage of their value and the SBA, they finance a percentage of the purchase price. Right. So you've been in real estate. Anytime credit becomes more available, what happens to the price of the houses? They go, Right. And so you can have two businesses, one in Canada, one in the US, that have the same number of dollars of cash flow, right? And the one in the States will sell for significantly more than the one in Canada. Oh, wow. Because it's easier to get credit for it. And the SBA will do 10 year notes. Banks in Canada won't lend over 10 years because they're looking at the tangible items. So they're saying, if I'm lending against the equipment, how long is the equipment going to last? Mm -hmm. So it's more typical to see five or seven year loans. And so when you look at how that's going to cash flow, you know, if you can pay over 10 years oh, yeah, cash flow be much or better. to pay more. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So that's, so that's a thing. Um, I mean, so I've looked, I've looked outside of that as well. The reason why the reason why I looked at SBA is because they have, from what I've seen, the lowest uh, down payment, right? 10% 10, 10 minimum, what have you, where I was looking at private banks. I mean, it was like 20% was the lowest that I found and most of them were 25 or 30%. And so, you know, the I, when I looked at that and then looked at what business, the you know, the level of business and the, and the cash flow that I'd be able to get, I was like, well, it just doesn't make, it didn't make sense in my mind to use anything, but what would give me, you know, the, the lowest down payment, right? I mean, what am I, what am I missing there? Well, the, the idea of using leverage is to enhance your returns, right? right. You can buy a bigger business if you can get more leverage. Exactly. 
here's the problem with businesses though, is that if I see five years of financial statements and the, the revenues go bouncing along five or 10% a year, that's flat. Mm-hmm. But a 10% reduction in sales in one year in a business could be a 50% reduction in profit. There's an asymmetrical relationship between the top line and the bottom line. And in real estate, you might account for a vacancy factor and say, you know, I might have a house empty for a month, but it'd be very rare for you to have a house empty for six months. Well, a 10% drop in business revenues causing a 50% drop in profit is the same as having a house empty for six months. Right. And so the riskiness is so much greater. Now in a business, you can also have sales go up 50% and have your profit go up 200%, which is what draws people in because you can just like the downside can happen to you. The upside can happen to you as well. Right. It, it, it's just more leveraged. So the, the sellers who are doing the seller financing, if I'm holding paper and I'm behind a bank in the order of security. Mm-hmm. What I realize is that if something goes wrong with you, the chances of me collecting are probably next to nothing. Mm-hmm. The banker loves having a seller with a seller note because then it, it creates a plan B for the bank. Mm-hmm. Because if you fail, the banker can then call me and say, look, if we foreclose, you're not going to get anything. Right. Why don't you foreclose and take over the payments? Right, right. Because right? the banker knows the seller knows how to run it. Right. So here's a different scenario altogether. If there's no bank, how is that going to change the attitude of the seller? So I've done deals before where buyers have put down as little as 20, 30% mm-hmm. and the seller has financed the balance because there's no bank. Yeah. It means that if you start missing payments, there's no one he has to work around. He just foreclosed on you and take the business back. Right. So he's, his security position is much better yeah. if there is no bank there. Huh. That would probably mean that you're not looking at a $2 million business. You're looking at a seven hundred fifty dollars or $800,000 business. Right. But if you, if you get rid of the bank, half the problems you've been talking about disappear. Hmm. Right. And, yeah. and so there's all kinds of different ways to look at this. The fact that you haven't been a business owner before should also be something that you're considering too. So if you, if you buy something that's a little bit smaller, that potentially might be easier for you to learn, easier to manage. You have a highly invested seller who has a big seller note, who has a real interest in your success. You can then count on more mentorship, learning, et cetera, from them, not just a transition period, but being able to pick up the phone and call them whenever something happens, right. it's going to make it easier for you to, to become the owner in that scenario. Right. right? Mm. Yes. I think that's true. Now that leads us into the other thing that you had put on the list was about what to expect in your first month. Right. Getting back to Kevin in Georgia, uh, he used the expression drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, <laughs> I would think so. Right. Because yeah. it's, and, but it shouldn't be scary because everyone's had a new job, mm-hmm. right? At different points in your life. And there might be a lot to learn, but most people who get into a new job become functional within a couple of weeks of, of learning what's going on. And then it's just a matter of having a resource 
to go to when you run into the things that, that are happen that go wrong. And so most buyers that I've worked with who have done a deal, they're always afraid that there's this big secret body of knowledge that they have to adopt. Mm -hmm. And they ask for long transition periods Mm -hmm. and sellers are hesitant to do that because they they don't want to stick around for three months or five months or whatever it is. And so every buyer who's ever gotten a long transition that I've worked with has ended up sending the seller home before the transaction period was over. Really? Yeah. That is, that is surprising to me. Wow. So, so they'll, they'll secure them for like 10 weeks. And mm-hmm. after three weeks they go, look, um, I got your cell phone number. Why don't you head home? Wow. Be- because after the buyer becomes proficient enough to deal with the day to day, there's other problems with having the seller in the business. And that is when employees come forward, you know, how do they, you know, learn to live with your authority when the old authority is still right, there? there right. And if they ask a question and that person answers, then does that, un, you know, destabilize your ability to get them to be following you, right? right. And, and so what I started to do is I started to recommend this for a transition period. I'd say, why don't you ask them for four weeks but then a certain number of days in the following year. So I want you to stick around the business for four weeks. And then I want you to be available for 10 business days Mm -hmm. as I schedule them at some point over the course of the next year. Then you get in there, you learn the business and then, um, then you can run the business. And as things come up, you start to make a list and then you call them up or, or maybe there's something that happens quarterly some kind of government filing or mm-hmm. the septic business. Maybe there's some kind of reporting for environmental agencies or something. Right. And so then you might want them to come back in for that event mm-hmm. so that they can help you with that or right. come back in to do that laundry list of stuff that has come up. Yeah. I like that idea. And the fact is if you owe them a lot of money, mm-hmm. they'll answer your calls. Sure, sure. And, and the flip side is uh, if you, uh, you're in business buyer advantage. So right now, between now and Christmas, there's a bonus recording in there. You should download it before Christmas. Okay. It's down at the very bottom. I do a one hour interview with a business owner who bought a business without seller financing. Mm-hmm. And then some stuff happened. And, and you, you can see night and day, the difference in the way that sellers react when they've got nothing on the line. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And, and this is the other problem I have with SBA 90% financing. Because under that 90% program, they'll sometimes allow buyers to put in only 5% if the seller holds a 5% note. Really? A lot of business sellers, if they get 95 cents on the dollar on closing day. They're, they're okay. We're just throwing away that, right? They yeah. just mentally check out. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you sold $100 worth of goods and accepted a credit card, you only get $97 and a half dollars. like, all right. So what's 95? It's okay. almost there, right? Yeah. And then they, they start to look at it as if I get the money one day, it's like, it's like a little lottery win. Right. So to me, that's not skin in the game. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, you know, when you get in there and you're taking over for, for the first month, mm-hmm. you need to have a plan of what you want to get from the owner. Right. And so the, um, you're in the military, the military is highly systematized. 
with standard operating procedures, checklists, methodologies. So you'll want to be thinking about the business and the business has various um, value pathways through it. So if it's a manufacturing business, they receive goods. There's a process to receive them. Then they do something to the goods. They manufacture, they change them, et cetera. And they package stuff up. And then they have some way of matching what they've made to the orders. And then they have some way of getting it off to the customers. So that is like a value pathway through the business. So you want to chart that out so that you can actually have a documented plan of everything that you want to learn about. So how do they find their suppliers? How do they deal with the suppliers? Where, who handles that? If it's a big enough business, maybe there's a purchaser, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and then you want to go all the way down through the path. And then they do something to it using machinery. Well, where does the machinery come from? Who's the dealer? Who services the machinery? Is there a maintenance schedule, right? And right. so you're, you're thinking about all this stuff as you go through so that right. when you get in there in your transition period, you have a plan. These are all the things I got to cover. A well-organized, well-oiled business will have a lot of this stuff already done. You're not going to find that very often. Right. And so the, the biggest friend you have is a, is a smartphone because a lot of this stuff, the easiest way to capture it is to make little recordings. Yeah. When, um, when my ex-wife and I bought a trophy shop, they had this engraving machine that was like 25 years old and there were no manuals or anything. And the owner um, was an expert in using it. And I was like, this is our only resource here. And we didn't, there weren't smartphones at the time, but we had one of those um, digital video cameras that would take like the the little memory cards. And so she took that in and she made videos of Janine was her name, made videos of Janine doing all these different steps. Okay. And then when she hired, when my wife hired people, she then used those as the training videos for the new people. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah. so you get all this stuff documented as well as you can so that you can create systems. Oftentimes you will have the skills from your background to better implement this stuff in the business and actually make the business run better. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, I have a lot of anxiety about, um, I know, I know I want to do this, but I have a lot of anxiety about it the uh i'm not uh worried about the the management part i know how to manage people right i've done that for 25 years so mm-hmm. so many different organizations it's it's actually the, the the technical skill uh that even though obviously i'm not the one pumping i wouldn't be the one pumping this after text obviously but i need to understand that and be able to explain things to customers and stuff like that so, so yeah. the thing that most people have a hard time with are managing the people and things like cash flow management, right? And so that's where having a plan or a forecast of what you expect the cash flow to be like, and then compare it with your actual performance every month is going to be a useful thing. Um, Technical knowledge, like understanding what size septic tank goes with which size of a house, what size of family, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff can be learned. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, So I'm sure you get this one a lot too. Uh, I mean, ultimately my goal is to not, is to not be there running the business, right? Ultimately I want to get there, learn the ropes, 
you know, get the cash flow the way I want to, and then hire someone to replace me, essentially, right? Um, from your experience, how often have you seen people do that successfully, or what? Or what have been the pitfalls that you've seen when people try to do something like that? So, being an owner and not being the person that runs it means that you have to develop yet another set of skills. So the example I always use is the, like the chain of like Exxon stations in your region, right? right? Every gas station might have a manager, mm-hmm. but the people at the head office of Exxon, they, they can't rely on that person just to make all the decisions and run the business on their own. So there's somebody else. There's like a regional manager that takes information from the stores and f- reports from the managers to make sure the managers are running a good business, yeah. Right. That's the type of skill you have to develop. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to be able to keep an eye on what's going on in the business and recognize when problems occur? Because people who don't do this well, this is what happens. They get to year end and then all the information goes to the accountant and then the accountant prepares a tax return and maybe a set of financial statements. And then you look at them and you go, oh my God, we didn't make any money. Or, oh my God, why are our costs up 10%? Or, well, by that time, some of those results are 18 months old. And you're halfway through the second year, not knowing what's going on. The, the best person that I've ever seen do this was a guy named Tony. I sold him several businesses when I had my brokerage office open. And he was a VP at an energy company. And he had several departments under him. And what he would do is he created a report for every one of these departments based on what they did. Mm-hmm. And when he bought businesses, he kept his job as a VP. And he did this with his businesses. He had a manager in place and he would like, one of them was a floor installation company. So the, he would have a list of things he wanted, the number of inquiries that came in, the number of quotes that were done, the number of quotes that became sales, right? And then they would be on the delivery and installation side. It would be like how many jobs got complete, how many square feet of stuff was installed and so that report had to be into him every Friday because on the weekends he would review them and it gave him a snapshot into what was going on. And once you start to have a year of that, then you can start to look at trends, right? right. And, and that's how he was able to, to manage it. And, you know, he'd be able to pick up the phone and say, how come our, con- our quotation conversion rate is down so much? What's going on with the salespeople, right? right? Maybe there was a new salesperson. Right. So then he'd be able to say to the manager, like, be on top of that because something's not working right in the quotes. Right. Right. So, so it's, it's a, it's another set of skills. The, you will run into businesses where the owner says I'm in Florida six months of the year, it runs itself. Right. That's because he used to be the person who managed it. He knows it inside and out. He knows what questions to ask. And in today's day and age, it's very common to take a laptop to Florida and still log into the POS data and the accounting data and the banking data and to use those digital video cameras to actually look in the business if he wants to and see what's, what's going on. So there are, there are people that run businesses who will say, yeah, I don't work there. I go to Florida half the year. But in Florida, they're working five or six hours a day. They're, they're, they're actually still doing what they would have done back in location, but they're just doing it from the kitchen table of their condo or whatever their the hotel room in Florida. And so 
they, because they know the business inside and out, even if they've left it with a manager, when they talk to the manager, they know what to ask. Right. Right. And so for you to buy that business and become that person in Florida, you wouldn't know what to ask. Yeah. You have to be, do the manager's job to, first. Yeah, definitely have to do that for a while, yeah. My, yeah. And, you know, and my goal, I don't know how, I guess it's different for different people, but my plan at least would to be would be to be there for at least a year. At least a year, probably more. Just I, I feel like that's one whole cycle. You know, I need to see like a whole cycle of how things work. Uh, I actually think there's some certification that I would need to get as well, like some sort of plumbing thing as well. So there's some schooling and testing and stuff as well. Yeah, there could be if it's if it's a licensed industry that right. requires somebody to have a certain ticket to to be the owner. It could right. be. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my buddy Rick has been interviewed on my YouTube channel a few times. Mm -hmm. He's owned five different restaurants, okay. and he had the last three that he had. There were managers in each of them. Yeah. He still spent three to four hours a day, oh, wow. just looking at numbers okay wow okay well yeah you do what you gotta do that's that's awesome yeah um so i think my last question is kind of um it's probably when you get a lot too right <laughs> so as i look so like i said i've got i've got a couple hundred thousand dollars to invest for a down payment in these businesses that i'm looking at they you know they have sdes of four hundred seven hundred thousand dollars so in my mind i say Hey, if I buy this business and I wind up getting, let's say after taxes, whatever, $500,000, I make $500,000 a year with this business. Well, that's enough for a down payment on another business. So, you know, hypothetically, I could buy, I'd have enough to buy another, a business a year if I wanted to, two businesses a year if I wanted to, you know what I mean? In, in five years, I'll have 10 businesses. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure if you you've uh you know you've gotten this before this people who have these dreams of scaling up quickly and you know placing you know managers and suddenly they're the managers of the managers i mean have you seen someone do this successfully or is this just like crazy because then it would really be me working like 27 hours a day and well it it it, <laughs> it, it 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 extends your resources significantly but but here's the thing is you know I often tell people a good rule of thumb is that they need cash equal to about 50% of the SDE of the business they want to target. Okay. So if you have 200 grand, then you might be able to target a business that has SDE maybe of 400, but, but then there's all these other expenses and things that pop up. And then there's the requirement to have a, like a security blanket, mm -hmm. you know? So, so, I honestly think that you probably need to shrink a little bit your target. Okay. Yeah. Is, you know, you know what the best medicine is to get a good night's sleep? A hard day's work. <laughs> no, no. It's to have like six months of your living expenses in a bank account somewhere. Oh uh, yeah. That's, that is a good night's sleep. Right. Because, <laughs> because, I, I have lived through staying up at night, figuring out how I was going to get the money for something. Yeah. And a lot of people have, mm -hmm. and it creates stress yeah. and it backs you into a corner all the time. And it, it, it's not a pleasant ownership experience. Right. You don't want to back yourself into that kind of corner. You want to have 
resources in case of trouble. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, that was all the questions that I wrote down, actually. Well, it's awesome. We're right on time. Right on time. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I appreciate this so much. I really, let me tell you, I've had a lot of experience with buying education. Um, years ago, I bought like this, uh, you know, stock investing, you know, uh, program or whatever. And I, I've done that when I first started in investment real estate, there's a, there's so many people trying to teach you how to buy investment real estate, right? All you got to do is just turn on the TV late at night and do you want to buy 10 houses today with no money down and no credit and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So here's what, and honestly, I haven't gotten my money out of any of them. I spent thousands of dollars over the year over the years. I will tell you that I, I have been in just, I've, like I said, I'm only about a quarter of the way through your program right now. And I'm, I'm really happy with it. Uh, honestly, I would have paid more for it. Don't, <laughs> don't charge more, but I would have paid more. It's really, it's really good. And I'll tell you specifically what I do, what I like about it. Okay. One is you're actually giving, you're actually giving the information. So many of these programs I buy, it's just, they just kind of string you along. They give you just enough to want to buy their next course. You know, you're actually saying, hey, this is what you're going to get out of this course. And then you give it to us. And hey, yes, I have this other course too, but it's a whole different subject matter. And this is what you're going to get in that course. And I really appreciate that. Like, just, just tell me what I'm paying for and then give me what I'm paying for. And so uh, I really appreciate that. And it's, uh, it's going well. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to get the, um, when I get further along in the process, the uh, cash flow and, and business plan writing. Because I feel like, I feel like having a really solid business plan would be really, would really help me when I start talking about financing with banks yep. and stuff like that, right? It, it, it bolsters my, my credibility, I would think, especially because I lack some experience. You know, Eric, thank you very much for the comments. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And you're not the first person to say that it, it should probably be sold for more money. It's about $400, I think. But I'll tell you the, the reason I put it out there and the reason it's priced the way it is, is because uh, my mission is to help stop people from getting into these crappy deals. I, I've just met too many people in my life who say I, I saved up 400 grand and I put it in this deal and I lost my money or I ended up bankrupt or what have you. And I, I just feel that if I put it out there and make it available affordably for people that can use it to avoid problems that I'll end up taking care of somehow. And it's been working. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great night. And, uh, and thanks for signing up for holiday chat. And I know everyone who watches is going to enjoy it. All right. Hey, thanks. Have a good one. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.